me this morning to Titus chapter 1 in your Bible. Titus chapter 1. There's folks on Zoom this morning. I want to say hello to them. And uh, thankful for an opportunity to connect with them. I know uh, sometimes when you're sick, afflicted, you're not really feeling like doing anything. And uh, thank you, John. But it's a blessing to be able to connect with folks who do desire to hear God's word, but maybe can't get away from home for different reasons. And uh, Angela just said hello uh, to everyone, and so did Chad, so glad they're able to connect as well. Uh, I mentioned uh, last week, it may have been the week before, I, by the way, I just, I told someone this morning, if I preach heresy today, I'm still responsible, but I'm a little tired, I'm going to try not to. <laughs> It's been, a, it's been a busy couple weeks. Uh, on top of everything uh, else going on, somebody decided to order Chipotle in my name with my credit card, debit card, and uh, my bank had to stop that card, and I have no idea how they got it. And uh, So anyway, just lots of things happening that uh, tend towards tiredness. Um, I'm going to do my best, and I know the Lord helps too. Uh, I mentioned the uh, pulpit committee uh, that's in the notes for the annual meeting tonight, and I, I really uh, hope that when you saw that, uh, some of you asked about it, uh, we're, we could call it a pastoral search committee, um, but uh, as far as I know, it's not this pastor that you're searching for. We're searching for an associate, and uh, we've actually already found a, a someone we're looking at real seriously. I think you know that, and, uh, but we, we want to go through the constitutional process, which I'll be talking a little bit about tonight, uh, just so you know um, what, what's taking place there. And uh, uh, we're committed to certainly honoring the Lord and uh, His Word in the process, so that's why we're turning to Titus rather than Exodus. Uh, Exodus may give ordination for priests, but Titus gives qualifications for pastors and elders and overseers, and so does uh, Timothy. So as Paul gave out those instructions, the purpose of that was to give churches a standard to go by in addition to whatever constitution there may be in a church, of course, the, the critical point is what does the scripture say? And so this message is obviously for all of us. Uh, I'm expecting John to be paying attention, but I'm also paying attention as pastor because qualifications have to be maintained. 
and uh, I trust the Lord will use this in all of our hearts today. So when we come to the book of letter to Titus, of course this is written by the Apostle Paul. He introduces himself in the first uh, few verses here. I'll just read through his uh, introduction here, his greeting, and then we'll read down through verse 9. It says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict Paul goes on to say why that was necessary there in Crete, but certainly everywhere, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, of course, the devil and evil men, sinful men, uh, purpose to subvert the gospel and the truth, and of course are teaching their own lies in the place of that. So we come to this book or this letter uh, of Paul to Titus, and as you think about Paul and Titus, you think about their ministry together. They did travel together, spent time together. Uh, according to verse 5, Paul left Titus in Crete, which means Paul had been there preaching the gospel. Paul's custom, based on the book of Acts, was to begin at the synagogue to spend several weeks arguing from the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer, that that's what the Old Testament taught. And he also, of course, identified the Messiah as Jesus. And while, of course, he's starting at the synagogue, that didn't mean that Gentiles couldn't come as well. And in some cases, as you look through the book of Acts, and there's a reference to the God-fearers, Sometimes it's translated, you who fear God. Uh, that references Gentiles who were listening to the teaching that was taking place in the synagogue. Now, when the Messiah is identified, there's a choice to make. And, of course, some rejected the message that Jesus was the Messiah Others received the message, and as the message was received, disciples were made, and disciples began to gather together and to be taught in a separate place, and of course, that's the founding of a church in a location. In this case, Crete is an island. It has cities. That's why Paul says in verse 5, 
He calls Titus to set in order, he said, what remains and appoint elders in every city. So you get the scope of Titus' ministry here was not just in a location, uh, individual city, but cities where Titus would have to go and give instructions. And those instructions had to do with what this chapter is about. Uh, but as Paul continues through the letter... There is a teaching or truth according to godliness, as you see down in verse 1. There's a doctrine that produces godliness, and it's in part that doctrine that Paul is communicating to Titus, and he's telling Titus to communicate to those churches there in Crete so that the churches would be set in order, not only in terms of leadership, but also the teaching that they were to uh, adhere to. So, if you were to look through Paul's ministry and follow his missionary travels, there were times where, of course, he preached the gospel but had to leave a city because of persecution. He would preach, and then even sometimes he's engaged in discipleship as he was, for instance, in Thessalonica. But after a period of time, because of the Jews and their opposition, sometimes Paul got chased out of town, and then he would either write letters or he would leave people to then do what Titus is tasked with doing here. Timothy was someone similar who would, in Paul's place, you might say, minister to those new disciples, and that's why Timothy also was given in 1 Timothy chapter 3 those instructions about uh, qualifications for leadership. And so what Paul is drawing attention to here is that the churches in Crete, those cities where disciples had been made, were in need of something. They were in need of uh, certainly being set in order. Again, the whole epistle's in view. But the very first thing Paul draws attention to is the necessity for qualified leadership. And so this message is about qualifications for church leadership. You can see that this is Paul's directive. He says, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains. So what was lacking there in Crete that Paul knew needed to be completed for the health of those churches was the appointed leadership qualified leadership to lead God's people. And Paul is not just giving this as a suggestion. He introduces himself in verse 1, of course, as an apostle. That meant in the early church that Paul was part of that apostolic company who were witnesses to the resurrection of Christ, who were, you would say, in terms of the church, the primary uh, proponents of the gospel, but they also held authority because they were sent by Jesus Christ himself. That did not mean that they always spoke uh, perfectly, as Jesus, of course, always spoke the truth. It didn't mean they had any kind of, uh, as the Roman Catholic Church speaks about the Pope ex cathedra, there were no uh, powers like that given to a man. But when an apostle representing Jesus Christ, particularly is writing scripture, this is coming from the Holy Spirit of God, and this is direction from God as these apostles, and of course we have letters from Peter as well, and others who were given the task of writing Scripture. But as 
Paul is speaking here. He's speaking as an apostle. And he's giving instructions. There's a call to set in order, which may be a correction, but it seems more of a completion of what was necessary there for the gospel. It was a command. Titus is tasked with this. This is something he's responsible now to do. And then Paul gets right into the qualifications. And I want you to notice the terms that Paul uses here as he describes uh, the leaders that are appointed over God's people. In verse 5, notice he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. If you look down at verse 7, it's for the overseer must be above reproach. But then a third term that he uses here is God's steward. Absent from this passage, what we would find in other places is what word we think of when we think of leaders in the church. I'm not thinking of deacons, the other office. Thinking of pastor pastor, which is another way of saying shepherd, okay? So when Paul refers here to the leader in the church or leaders, he says elders, he says overseer, he says steward, and in other places he says pastor. I want to ask you to turn back to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Verse 17, Acts chapter 20. Paul's on a missionary journey here. He's trying to get to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. But in verse 17, it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Okay, we saw that in Titus, elders. As you follow his message to these elders as they come, verse 18 says that when they had come to him, and then he describes his ministry among them, and the potential that was waiting for him in Jerusalem, based upon what he'd known, that the Holy Spirit had communicated there was going to be persecution. Verse 25, as he addresses these elders, it says, And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Okay, he says the flock. What's he talking about? Of course, he's talking about the church. The church is a flock. And so it's very natural that he would also use another term that describes what the leaders do. For all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We saw that in Titus. But then it says, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So these are elders. These are overseers. These are shepherds. And based on Titus chapter 1, they're also stewards. They're responsible for managing the household of God. 
Now, my purpose is not to make a full study of this uh, subject this morning, but I think if you were to look through the New Testament for words that are applied to church leaders, of course, we also have the office of deacon in the church, but overseer, shepherd or pastor, elder, they're all used synonymously. They communicate different aspects of what the person who's leading God's people is and does. And when it comes to the word steward, there's a sense in which that's the relationship that he has to God's people, but it's also descriptive of the relationship that he has to God. A steward manages something, but a steward has a master. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 13... As the writer there, I believe it's Paul, but as the writer is speaking about leaders within the church, what does he say? Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give account. So these that are overseers, elders, pastors, stewards, they will have to give an account of their stewardship, an account ultimately to God. Notice that verse 17 continues. It says, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And so there's a relationship that the pastor has to the congregation, but ultimately the accountability for that is to God himself. And he will give an account to God for that. I will give an account. And any person who finds himself in, rightfully, certainly in the office of pastor, an overseer, is going to have to stand before God and in some way give an account of their ministry to God. Sobering thing. Really should be sobering to all of us because, yes, the pastor has to, but who does he give an account for? He gives an account for the people that he's keeping watch over. So if I could put it this way, just simply, we all need to behave. We all need to do what's right. There's not a one of us who isn't going to stand before the Lord, but in terms of what our ministry was, there are, in terms of a steward, whatever's under his care is going to be a part of that standing before the Lord. Sobering thing to think about. Turn back, if you would, to Titus chapter 1. If you wanted to consider other passages which use the same term or terms. First Peter 5 is also a passage. Paul refers in the book of Acts to church leaders, or Luke does rather as he writes, refers to them as elders. Uh, James talks about elders in the church. And again, we're not so much looking at the structure of leadership, but based on what Paul says here, there's at least elders in every city 
based on James chapter 5, verse 14, and also Acts chapter 14, verse 23. There are elders, plural, in every church. Elders, plural, in every church. So when we think about our church and our circumstance now, my understanding of God's Word is as the body grows, as the church grows, as there is necessity for more leaders, then you take on more leaders, you appoint more leaders. Um, I think in the New Testament you have churches that were of such a size that they needed multiple elders immediately. And apparently, in terms of the qualifications, there were those who were qualified. Uh, Not all the New Testament had been written at that point, and so those who came into uh, a position as elder, even in the case of Crete here, the the, the test for those individuals who would come into that office, who would be appointed to that by the church with these qualifications, if you notice down in verse 9, it was important that they would hold fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. So how they had received the word, the fact that they were devoted themselves, and I have another message on that particular verse that I'd like to give at some point. But, so, we're really talking about someone who's holding fast to the teaching, first of all, that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, that He's come in the flesh, and the gospel message. But beyond that, what is the teaching that has been given, and does He hold fast to that? Is He, is he devoted to that? And again, that's another message. I just draw attention to it, because you're thinking about the early church and how things took place, and it is certainly unusual. We're... Uh, you know, about 2,000 years later here, and we're seeing how this passage applies in 2022. But what does Paul give direction about before he even talks about the doctrine? Before he even gets into what the person may believe or not? It's really about the life of the person. Paul does not draw attention here, and you wouldn't expect him to in the first century, but he's not drawing attention to the person's ability to speak well, though an elder would have to be able to teach. So the terms that Paul did not use include philosopher, motivational speaker, entertainer, producer, event coordinator, worship leader, psychologist, storyteller, PowerPoint expert. But things have changed, haven't they, in 21st century America, and you could certainly say the world. What is the expectation these days for someone who occupies the office? One writer said, since the 1960s, we've experienced an evolution in what we expect a local church pastor to be. Forty years ago, he was expected to be a resident authority on theology and biblical teaching. Slowly, this gave way to a model of the pastor as CEO of the church, the administrative and organizational leader. Today, the ministers we want, and I wouldn't include myself in this, but he says we want, but as a whole in society, are Christianized pop therapists who are entertaining to listen to. 
Now, there's certainly his administration involved in leading of a church. That's, I think, implied from that term steward. There's necessity of that. That's not the only thing. And the terms that are given, overseer, elder, shepherd, there are some who may fit the category of CEO and are able to manage, but they're not pastors. They may not even know their people or be pastoring their people in some cases. I don't know if you've ever been to a church like that, but sometimes churches are so multi-site in campus that the person speaking to the people doesn't even have a personal relationship with the people present. And biblically, I think that's a problem. I don't think it fits the picture. No, what is spoken of here, first of all, is the character of the person, the life of the person who is going to be God's steward, an elder, pastor, overseer. Notice what it says in verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So his family is brought in. His marriage is brought in. And then, as it continues, his own personal character and the way that he relates to other people. So we're not talking about someone who just exhibits the fruit of the Spirit, although that would be important. Assumption here... uh, critical assumption is that this person knows the Lord. This person is going to be drawn from among God's people, not from outside. So this is someone who, as Titus, would come to these churches and lay down these qualifications. They're not looking outside of the household of faith. They're only looking within the household of faith. Not looking for a nice-looking resume, not looking for advanced seminary degrees. Certainly we would value biblical knowledge, and that is important. There's a certain knowledge that's important as someone leads God's people. They need to be out in front of God's people in that respect and discipling people and equipping people, and that's part of gifting. It's also part of a personal pursuit. We're not talking about just somebody who is of considerable influence. We're certainly not talking about someone who has a lot of money. That's not the qualification that God sets forward. We don't think in those terms. We think in biblical terms, which the very first thing here is if a man is blameless or he is above reproach. And you could say this is an overarching and general qualification. Look at verse 7 again, for the overseer must be above reproach. He must be blameless. Not to be called to account is one way to put it, unreprovable. There's no ground for complaint. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's the same qualification as a deacon. And so there must be no charges of impropriety, whether in his home or in his affairs, in his office, His reputation, someone said, both inside and outside the church must pass the test. And we're not talking about perfection. We can't say that. Nobody was perfect except for Jesus. But nothing in the person's life is worthy of reproof. 
There's no objective reason for calling him to account. If he sins, he makes a mistake, he deals with that like anyone else, and there's certainly disqualifying sins. But we're not talking about something that, uh, you know, we are talking about something that is ongoing in his life that would be worthy of blame, that would be a spot against his character. He has to be above reproach. And you say, what categories? Well, the categories continue as Paul describes. In, in what ways is this person to be blameless? And so the first category that he gives is the husband of one wife. And I'd put it this way. In his life, he must be blameless. In his marriage, he must be faithful. He is to be a husband of one wife, a man who is faithful to his wife, and I'm going to spell out a little bit more here, just by way of uh, something that's obvious here, should be obvious, but by implication, the pastor, the overseer, the steward must be a man. This is one of the passages that indicate that very clearly. You can see that also in First Timothy chapter 3, that the one who leads God's people needs to be a male, man. And the word order is that he is a one-woman man. I don't believe that means that he has to be married. If that was the case, Paul couldn't be in this office. Jesus, of course, was unmarried as well. So it doesn't mean he has to be married. Obviously, we need help, don't we, men? And so when a wife comes along provided by the Lord, that's a big help, and it certainly would be a help to a pastor But if it meant that the elder, the church leader had to be a married man, Timothy, Paul, Jesus, others would have to be disqualified. If Paul wanted to set down this qualification, he probably would say having a wife. He would have to say he needs to have a wife. But this qualification, I believe, points to the fact that if he does have a wife, that he needs to be faithful to her. He cannot be a bigamist, a polygamist. That would go against the biblical standard of one man, one woman, as it was in the garden. Uh, I don't believe this means that the person cannot be a remarried widower. You understand what I mean? If someone's wife passes away, can a person marry again? Well, marriage is until death do us part, but if death parts a man and his wife, even a pastor, that pastor could remarry in the Lord. We wanted to look more at instructions about that. 1 Corinthians 7 gives instructions about remarriage of widows and widowers. But I think the, probably the most controversial, the most uh, you know, ink is spilled over the question as to whether or not the husband of one wife could be someone who has been divorced. And there are those who would argue that a person who is divorced as an innocent party, a man who is divorced as an innocent party, remarried under those conditions, that that kind of a person could become a pastor. So that would not, in, that, in this view, would not threaten that if things were done in a biblical way. 
In other words, the man was not the one who committed adultery. The wife was. He was sinned against. And I've uh, heard different ideas about that, different thoughts about that. I uh, don't believe in terms of even our Constitution that we would uh, follow any reasoning that would go in the direction that a person who has been divorced can be a pastor. Our statement in our Constitution says only those men who have been a member of Fallsbury and Bible Church for at least one year shall be eligible to serve on the board. In addition, no man who has been divorced shall be eligible to occupy the office of pastor or deacon. And so it really doesn't specify. I've had at least one relationship with someone who, as I thought about their circumstance and I understood that they were a pastor, it just gave me pause for thought. That actually, could that person be rightfully a pastor? He was the innocent party divorced prior to even being saved, then married, then came to Christ, his family came to Christ, and eventually in his life he became a pastor. That's what I know of the situation. But that would be rare, and I think there's good reason for the statement of our Constitution that really applies this condition the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, as a person who has not been divorced. Um, And we can certainly discuss more about it. It kind of gets you into the issue of divorce, and that's not the purpose. But I think the point here is that the person who is going to lead God's people needs to be a one-woman man needs to be faithful to this relationship. He must be devoted to his wife. That certainly means sexual purity. Means he needs to be pursuing oneness with his wife. He needs to be constantly fighting against the sin in his own heart and his flesh. And certainly that refers to his outward actions, his inner life, but there needs to be, ought to be, a real and loving, faithful relationship between him and his wife a one-woman man, a husband of one wife. Now, you just ask the question, if we, if we applied it this way, how many current pastors that are known as pastors would be out of the ministry? How many people would no longer be in the ministry? Well, obviously, it would exclude women. But beyond that, those who are in the ministry who are not a one-woman man. But in terms of what God's Word says, both here in 1 Timothy, the, the, the expectation, one of the first things has to do with a man and his marriage, his marital life. How important that is, that his closest relationship be right. And... As a sinner, that would mean that a pastor, like anybody else, needs to look to the Lord, needs to trust in the Lord, needs to be in God's Word, needs to seek day by day to be certainly faithful to God, faithful to his wife. And uh, certainly that's reason to pray for those who are in the ministry. But that's one qualification that is set down. The very first one, he needs to be blameless and it needs to be in this respect. So there shouldn't be any kind of 
certainly outwardly, but even inwardly, any pursuit of someone else in his life. There shouldn't be a hint or suggestion of that. God is faithful to his people. And as God is faithful to his people, so those who are in a marriage need to be faithful to one another, but the husband to the wife as he is a picture of Christ. And his wife is a picture of the church. And so in terms of the qualifications here, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, that's really setting down a very important qualification. That if neglected or looked over because the person has some kind of gifting or some kind of other thing about them that's admirable, no, you're missing something essential that God points to as essential and is critical and contributes ultimately to the health of the church. I want you to notice next, it says the husband of one wife, having children who believe, and I think this qualifying statement, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So in terms of his life, blameless, in terms of his marriage, faithful, in terms of his fatherhood, effective, he must have, and the word here is, uh, children who believe or faithful children. Now, if we applied that statement, having children who believe, if you have an infant or a young child who is not yet even at the place of understanding, that would immediately exclude them from being considered because the child would have to be a believing child. I think just by the surface of that, we'd have to say, no, that, that doesn't fit at least that situation, and we'll consider this a little bit more. Some take this verse or take this phrase to mean that the pastor's children must be saved, they must be believing children. And this word is used sometimes of believers. So when Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.10, for it is for this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Okay, connected word. It is this word that when Jesus speaks to Thomas, he says, do not be unbelieving but believing. Okay, same idea here. Uh, one writer said this refers to children having saving faith in Christ and reflected in their conduct. Since 1 Timothy 3 requires children to be in submission, it may be directed at young children in the home, while this text looks at those who are older. So there's, in, at least in that view, these are two different things that Timothy's talking about younger children. Now this is talking about older children I wouldn't take it that way. I don't take it that way that the child of a pastor has to be believing. But I do believe, based on the way that the text reads and what is said here, that the child must be faithful to the parents to be an obedient and respectful child. One writer said it this way, the contrast made is not be between believing and unbelieving children, but between obedient, respectful children and lawless, uncontrolled children. 
The strong terms, dissipation or rebellion, stress the children's behavior, not their eternal state. Okay? So as you see this statement qualified, having children who believed, then, or believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, that directs us to think in terms of their behavior, that their, their children can't be living like the devil, unsubmitted to their parents, while their father is trying to preach and proclaim, among other things, submission to the Word of God. So a faithful child, this writer says, is obedient and submissive to the father. The concept, he says, is similar to that of the faithful servant who is considered faithful because he or she obeys the master and does what the master says. And I think you have to be careful in saying that a man whose children are unbelieving cannot be an elder, not only for the issue of age, but also for the issue that God is sovereign in salvation. He's the one who, through the gospel, confronts every sinner. And that means whether the child in the home of a church member or the child in the home of a pastor. And the gospel message comes to every person individually, and every person individually must respond. And God is also sovereign in when he and how he works. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Okay, so there's a, this is talking about the man, not about the children per se. It is about them, but it's more about what the man is doing in his home, certainly to discipline his children rightly, and to a certain extent he has their heart. They follow him. They submit to him. Their eternal state not being in view. Uh, When Paul says here, not accused of dissipation, dissipation, someone defined as the act of one who has abandoned himself to reckless moral behavior. Another person said it's behavior which shows a lack of concern or thought for the consequences of an action. And you could see how the life of the pastor's children, if that's the way that they're living, would certainly undermine and undercut the truth of what he's teaching. Why should I listen to him? His children don't even obey. Right? And rebellion literally means not under orders, defiant. (laughs) I think I've shared this before, but when one time I was talking to my dad as a boy, I was angry about something that had happened, or I don't know if I was angry at him or something, and I said something, I'm going to run away. And my dad said to me, you know the first thing I'd have to do if you did that? And I'm thinking, what? What what would you do? He said, I'd have to resign as deacon. Boy, that put the fear of God into me. That I, I, by my actions could bring attention to something in my dad's life that would disqualify him. I remember one time a man, uh, when I lived down in South Carolina, when his son was asked because of his conduct to leave the school where he was, he served in his church as an officer, 
and he realized that he needed to resign. He needed to pay attention to his son. He needed to give some time to his son. I'll never forget listening to a pastor one time. He was preaching to a group of missionaries. And he said, I believe his son was in prison at the time he was speaking. And he said, does that disqualify me from ministry? And he's talking about, you know, the importance of someone who's in the ministry, the importance of the qualifications. And he said, now when my wife and I adopted my son, and it just kind of threw a whole different perspective on even what he was saying, but he was concerned that his fathering of his adopted child, whenever he adopted him, was still in view as he maintained qualification for ministry. So, and and let me just ask you, what do you think of when you hear the name Eli? When you know the biblical story of Eli, and you understand that he was a priest of God, He managed the house of God, and yet his sons in the house of God were committing adultery with the women who were serving there. What was that doing to the name of God in that nation at the time? What about David? What about Samuel? Remember, Samuel's sons were not behaving themselves. They took bribes as adult men. Samuel was a prophet of God who, Bible says, that God didn't let any of his words fall to the ground, and yet in his own family, his children, did not follow in his ways. The danger to that of that, rather, is certainly disrepute and dishonor on the name of God. First of all, it brings shame to God's name. But then for the, for the people who are listening in or following the words of, in the Old Testament, be a prophet or a priest, but in terms of a pastor, if the pastor's children are living a life of reckless disobedience and rebellion, what does that What does that do? It undermines the word of God. It undermines the words that he says. Why should I listen? So all of the work that a a man needs to do to be a good husband is important. And all the work that a man does to be a good father is important. It is important for the life of that man and his wife, so that they will glorify God in their marriage. It is important for the life of that man and his family that those children would follow the Lord. But if that man is leading God's people, it's important because those, the, the, the people of God are a family. This is a family. And if the man fails in his own family, how is he going to take care of the church of God? That's the question Paul poses, and it's an important one to consider. So if we follow the directions that Paul gives here, 
ultimately from God. These are the words of the Holy Spirit. Then we pay attention to the life of the person, to his marriage, to his children, if he has them. And certainly not just in our current context, but any time Fallsbury and Bible Church would ever uh, choose a pastor. And in God's will, I'm not going anywhere, but the next one and the next one. What do the scriptures say? That's what we need to follow. Uh, and that's why this, this really isn't a formality that we're going through. This has relevance to what our church is and is going to be. Now, don't be mistaken. The church of God is not dependent upon one person. Right? We, we, our head is Christ. He's the chief shepherd. There are under-shepherds. But you could certainly say, if you've ever seen it happen, when there's a problem with a shepherd, then it sometimes scatters the sheep. It results in damage to the name of Christ, but also damage to God's people. And pastors are flesh, and I've seen it happen, and I pray and pray for me that God would help me to be faithful, that I would be true to my wife and faithful in my fatherhood and my children, that I would be above reproach and blameless. But any time you see that that happen in the life of a person, it's destructive, obviously, to a family, a home, but eventually, if, if, if there's someone leading a church and, and there are issues that relate to these things, then it's going to be damaging to the church and to the cause of Christ. So we would do well, certainly, to consider carefully, follow God's directions, and in terms of those who are in the ministry, pray for them. In terms of churches, and we, you may know of a church or two that are going through this process of seeking to find someone and pray that they will be biblical in their approach to it. Uh, I know of at least two churches right now who I think if I named them, you'd know them. Uh, and we need to pray that God would help our sister churches to make wise decisions and follow the Scripture's teaching as well. Certainly, we need to do that here. May the Lord help us. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and its instruction. We thank you, Lord, that you give direction to your church today, just as you did to the churches there in Crete. And just as you did where Timothy was at Ephesus, wherever the church is around the world, if they follow these instructions, they're safeguarding the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're safeguarding the people of God. And so we ask, Lord, that you'd give us grace as uh, we continue, Lord, as a church family, both now but also in the years to come. We pray that we might be faithful to what your word teaches when it comes to leadership or anything else. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.